welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And together, Mike and I are re-reading our favourite series of novels, the Aubrey Maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, 13 Gun Salute, still going, is it? It is. It is. We're the last chapter, chapter 10. And it, 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 as we think back, you know, we had a, uh, some reversals. Last chapter, the Diane cruised by the false Natunas looking for the surprise. We we're also eager to see everybody again. And they saw pirates and ominous seabirds and sunsets and moonrises, but no surprise. Now, Fox, you know, wanted to get home as quickly as possible to claim his what he felt were his just rewards. And, you know, he and Jack fought over how fast to sail in these uncharted waters here. You know, Stephen suspects that Fox even has a little bit of an emotional disorder. Now, Fox declined Jack's dinner invitation, which set up a great gunroom party. And Fox was convinced, we learned, that, you know, Aubrey might snub him, that Aubrey has ill will towards him. And Fox gets really embarrassed back in the last chapter when he thought the Coronation Day gun salute was for Fox, not for the monarch here. Mm. Well, we ended up the chapter with the ship stuck on rocks and the envoy and his party sent ashore. So last chapter, chapter 10 coming up, Jack and his crew are going to work to free the ship and get the envoy to Batavia. And they're going to have to deal with the uncertainties and perils of the South China Sea that we've heard about the entire time here. Fox finally gets his way. Some might say he finally gets what's coming to him. We got the bitter end, splicing the main brace, bird's nest soup, and a proud moment for the Marines demonstrating their castramentation proficiency as the 13-gun salute comes to an end. Wow, the final chapter. I, I can't wait to hear about castramentation. <laughs> that, that's a word to salivate over if ever I heard it. I'm sitting with oh. my knees tight together just thinking. Yeah. About it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something's clenched. I can't quite work out what it is. Very good. <laughs> That'll be the castramentation. So um, the ship is aground. And w- without anybody particularly calling attention to the peril of the situation here, Jack and the whole ship's company get on with getting things off the ship. This is a very arduous, it's a very complex task. They're hoping to get the ship light so that it will float as quickly as possible to catch the next tide, because the next high tide will just be a little lower than the tide that they've beached on. They lighten the load all day. They're removing stores. They take away upper masts and spars. They start the water over the side, which is a risky move because that came before they'd even found any water sources on shore. They tried to pump out the seawater that's still in the well as fast as it comes in. The water around them recedes quickly as the ship takes on more and more of her unsupported weight sitting on these rocks and they hear the groaning of the ship's timbers. She's supported only by the heads of three rocks just before the deep water in front of her. They get to the damage that they can reach and they do some repair work. They rouse out their best 17-inch cable. And Mike, a a cable 17 inches across is a big old piece of rope. Unbelievably strenuous job, not only to get it out from in the cable tiers, they have to turn it on its end while it's below decks. Three and a half tons of cable, they turn it on its end. They want to get to what they call the bitter end, come to that in a second, the unworn, unused end, so that where it's always been connected to what they call the bits, the big bit of planking inboard where the ship is attached to the anchor. 
this end is thought to be lucky and they attach it with the luck and strength that goes with it to the best bower anchor, their biggest, their most stable anchor. Fielding and the master then use their skill to place the best bower carefully and then also to back that up with the smaller stream anchor, both heading into the best ground that's available amidst the rocks ahead. So if they should make it up onto the tide again and refloat, then they've got some solid holding to keep them where they need to be while they refloat the ship. But Mike, this idea of bitter end, something goes on to the bitter end. People listen to our podcast to the bitter end to hear the outtakes. What's all this bitter end stuff really about? Well, it's, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's got an interesting history. You know, we think of it like you were saying it, that you know, to uh, think of the bitter end as kind of the last extremity, however painful or calamitous, you know, to fight to the mm. bitter end no matter what. Rather than, you know, as you just described it, it's essentially the inboard end of a ship's anchoring cable, that part of the cable that's not out in the weather when the anchor is dropped. So it's, you know, it's going to be the least worn, kind of the best, the strongest, also the luckiest. But the phrase actually originated in the Old Testament, in, in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 5. So the first verses talk about, you know, it's asking, you know, somebody's asking their son to attend to wisdom and, you know, kind of give your ear over to understanding and you want to have discretion and your lips can keep deep knowledge. And it goes on to say, for the lips of a strange woman drop as honeycomb. And her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp wow. as a two-edged sword. Yeah, there we go. And then, you know, as if that's not enough, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. So this, this bitter end, variously interpreted as, an, an, you know, on the one side, a very straightforward admonition against infidelity. And it goes back on, you know, kind of stick with the wife that you have. But also, and, 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 you know, infidelity certainly plays a theme in the canon and is played out in this arc leading to and including 13-gun salute. But it's also biblically a metaphor about, you know, true wisdom kind of being like your loving spouse or what we might call a soulmate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's this wicked temptress of false wisdom or heresy kind of parading around here. So kind of wisdom or truth. Also, uh, you know, we've we've got a lot of that here in the canon, right? Morality, wisdom, truth, Stephen, scientific reason. We've had belief systems, cultures, philosophies all through the books, naval custom, tradition, the articles of war. So, and, and in this book itself, this difference between kind of what Fox believes is so and, and what is actually so, if you will, kind of echoing back to Confort. Yeah. We've got all the literal and metaphorical meanings of this bitter end all wrapped up here. <laughs> I'm sure O'Brien meant it. Yeah. Yeah. And this whole book's had all these little subtle allusions, the subtle bits of mysticism, the subtle references to natural philosophy. It, it's really kind of delicate the way he's putting all these things together. Not the kind of big, lumping, right. you know, mankind and, and philosophy themes that I think we had back in Master and Commander and maybe HMS Surprise. It's very, very subtle, nuanced stuff about human existence. And it's really fascinating. Considering yes. especially that the I thought the book started out fairly commonplace with all of that catching up and memorializing of the old stuff. It's turned out to be a really fascinating, really nuanced read. We're going to hear some more, I think, about the, about the subtleties later on. Anyway, um, while the boats are going backwards and forwards to the island, taking off stores to further lighten the ship, 
Stephen and Macmillan have been dealing with injuries. Injuries coming from this frantic work. There's a cut on the head of Blythe the purser. Blythe says they're near high water and they're hoping to have her off in half an hour. So this is, I guess, about 12 hours after they first went aground. The captain thinks that she may float, but if the leaks are too bad, they'll have to beach and careen her, which is what the French frigate had been doing in that inlet a couple of chapters ago. But they think that she'll likely swim and they can wrap a sail around her and use the pumps to reach Batavia, which, Mike, sounds like a, a reasonable prospect. We know that they used a, a, a fothering sail and pumps in much more strenuous, much more hazardous circumstances in the cold southern ocean in Desolation Island. Now, they're hoping, watching for the tide to come up. The tide does come up, but not quite as high as they like. The crew is all back aboard, ready to do some heaving on the uh, on the windlass. The ship is tons lighter. The crew and the officers are all at the capstan bars. They add loops to the end so that extra people can add their weight to the pressure on the bars. And we can see the cable being stretched so that it squirts. It's down to less than half its natural width. And Jack shouts, heave and rally. Heave! She moves! The carpenter breaks in, runs on deck, saying the horse pieces will never bear it. The the horse pieces are the foremost timbers of the ship, the anchor cable goes through the horse hole in these horse pieces um, at the last point of contact before the cable goes into the water. They stop heaving. Jack checks everything and realizes with a heavy heart it's time to say goodbye to some more heavy weight. He says they have to put all of the guns, all of them except the light carronades, overboard. And the gunner, who's already pale from his exertion at the capstan, turns even paler. And he and his mates tip them. Even Jack's personal brass chasers go over the side. All of the crew members feel the pain of this. O'Brien calls it deliberate self-castration and the inversion of all natural order. And Jack feels really ashamed of the pang that he feels when he hears the splash from his personal guns. Now, Mike, an an interesting thing next happens, which is that Jack orders Fielding, the first lieutenant, to splice the main brace, which is sort of synonymous with celebration. Um, But it's not celebration. It's a a blessed pause, I think, for the crew. It tends to sustain them. They're going to get, splicing the main brace means a celebration. They're going to get arak, not rum, uh, mixed with water, lemon juice, and sugar. And Jack himself takes the first pint and says, now, shipmates, let us see if we can shift the barkey this time. Now, it it might be worth digging into splicing the main brace for a second. It's it's almost like a, a, a cliche, certainly a British English speakers would go, oh yeah, splice the main brace. That's what sailors say when they mean it's time to have a drink. But splicing the main brace originates as as the order for a particularly difficult task afloat. The main brace is the biggest and heaviest of the bits of running rigging on board a ship. It controls the angle of the main yard, which is the, the yard upon which the biggest sail is set. And if it breaks underway, that's a heavy task. If it breaks at any time, when it needs splicing, it ends bringing back together the splice has to be really well roved so that the so that the spliced ends can still go through blocks because braces go through blocks so this calls for a splice which is a, which is a particularly tricky thing to do recalls for a particularly fine splice this fine splice needs making in the two ends of a really heavy and yet really important rope that needs to carry its full strength so splicing the main brace by no means a trivial thing it quickly became a a, a euphemism for the authorized celebratory drinking that comes after an arduous task, such as actually splicing the actual main brace. So on completion of an arduous task, in tradition in the Navy, it would be customary 
for the men to be rewarded with an extra ration of rum. That is still part of naval tradition. Splice the main braces in order that the commanding officer gives to say, okay, chaps, well done, let's have a tot. It's customary as well these days that, that this order tends to come only on special occasions and only from the highest level. If you go looking in the Twitter feeds of the of the various officers and establishments to do with the Royal Navy, you'll see two recent splice the main brace orders. One was back in 2017 to mark the commissioning of the UK's new aircraft carrier, HMS Queen Elizabeth, named after the Queen. She said, splice the main brace. And I'm looking right now at a tweet just a few days ago on the occasion of Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee, which was on June 6, 2022. The first sea lord, a senior uniformed naval officer in the uh, in the service, um, wrote on Twitter, as we mark the Platinum Jubilee, I am delighted to have received Her Majesty the Queen's good wishes to the Royal Navy and am honoured to convey Her Majesty's direction to splice the main brace. God save the Queen. So that's what we do. We splice the main brace when something big has happened. Or at least in this case, when the crew have worked their butts off. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's not for nothing. They've had the drink. The mm. guns are gone. Jack's thinking, you know, the ship's feeling a little lighter. Maybe he's feeling mm. a little light under him here. Um, and, and he takes a capstan bar with rising hope. The fiddler starts. The hands are walking around, tightening the cable. And Jack and the, and the others are all crying for everyone to heave. And the ship makes a big grating motion under them. They push even harder and everything gives way. You know, they all fall oh, into this kind of confused heap. Uh, they wind the cable in and they find that, in fact, the bitter end has parted. A bitter end for us, says Jack to the bosun. <laughs> and the bosun has kind of a very pale smile back at Jack, right? Well, they continued to lighten the ship all night. And the next morning, they carry out the small bower. And this time, they have two carronades lashed to it. So they're, you know, they're like not taking any chances. And everybody's watching as the tide's coming back in and moving up the copper. But it stops leaving a broad streak of copper showing, you know, it's an unnaturally low tide. And as you had said, each tide's going to be a little bit less. But this one, they're thinking, wait a minute. We didn't, you know, there's no way it was going to be that much less, but that's it. That's all they have. They man the bars, they try their best, and they can't move the ship at all. And Jack says, you know, we're just going to have to wait for the next spring tide. So as Jack and Stephen go to breakfast, Jack asks Fielding to have the small bower weighed so that the cable's not chafing on the, you know, this rocky ground. And by the way, let's go ahead and get all the rest of the envoy's baggage ashore. So let's, you know, part of this lightening up here. Edwards comes on a returning boat with Fox's request that Captain Aubrey come ashore. And and Jack, I think Jack's had it a little bit. He's, he's exhausted and everything else. And he, and he asked Edwards to kind of please compose a proper reply that says that, you know, he'll come at his earliest convenience. But, I, you know, Jack is thinking to himself, you know, why in the world did Fox just not come instead of sending a- Edwards that he right. needs to talk? Yeah, right. And he says, so I'm, I, you know, I'm taking a cat nap first and then I'm going to head over. And, he, and he's really put out that Fox is kind of standing on ceremony here. Oh, dear me. Uh, Fox can't fail to irritate and annoy people. And it's all driven by this hubris that we talked about last time. Um, when they, when Jack finally gets ashore, Fox is back into kind of polite mode because Jack's got something that he wants. Thanks, Jack, for coming. Says, I need to consult you urgently on the King's service, invoking a bit of authority there. Mike, it, it, it's funny. I wonder, in the last chapter, 
Jack had said, I represent the King afloat. And they'd had this uh, coming together, Jack and Fox. Um, Jack had said, you represent the King ashore and I represent the King afloat. It kind of made me wonder then about this choice of Fox kind of semi-insisting that Jack come ashore, maybe hoping that with their feet on dry land, somehow Jack's attitude to him will have changed. That's a little bit interesting bit point. Fox. Yeah. Um, anyhow, Fox says that as he understands it, the ship can't move until the next spring tide at the earliest. It's uncertain whether she'll be able to sail directly to Batavia when she does come off. He says he's not criticizing or blaming. He's not blaming Jack. Any further delay, though, is going to be prejudicial, as he says, to his majesty's service and argues that the detachment of a single ship can make a big difference. The East India Company, he says, needs to know whether they can risk this season's Indiaman on the China voyage to help the country's prosperity and ability to wage war. He's advancing all the high-level economic arguments and all the arguments of statehood here. He asks Jack, therefore, to have him, Fox, conveyed to Batavia on one of the larger boats, since it's barely two days' sail with a steady breeze. Fair hope, you would think. But Jack wants to be really, really clear to Fox what he's letting himself in for. The waters are dangerous. He, Jack, doesn't know them. And by the way, we've had a reminder of what it means to sail in unknown waters, just this chapter. He's not sure what the weather will be like since his instruments are broken. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, And there are, as we know, Dayaks, Malays, and Chinese around who have a piratical kind of tone about them. And Fox is at risk of being attacked. Fox says, well, I've known the waters for 35 years. Loder, one of the old bogus, has sailed around Java in his own boat, about the same size as the pinnace. And Loder and the Malays predict fair weather. Do they really? Hmm. Mm. Fox says this is a matter of duty, and he's laying it on really thick here with Jack. Jack takes a few paces up and down, thinks to himself, and he says, well, I'm going to let Fox have the pinnace with a carronade in her bows, a couple of hands to work the boat, muskets to arm Fox's party, an officer to navigate, and a coxswain to steer. And Mike, this, this is very generous. You know, I think Aubrey would be within his right here to say, get back aboard the ship and come back to me when you've got something constructive to offer to help the rest of the ship's company rather than furthering your own agenda. But still, Jack turns it over in his mind. Once again, there's no settled ill will on Jack's part towards Fox. That's the tragedy. That's what Fox doesn't understand. Right. He says, okay, I'll fit out the pinnace. Fox thanks him and says, I'm deeply obliged. I expected no less of you. Such a condescending thing to say. What an asshole. So Jack says, get your people and provisions ready. I'm going to send the boat at 11. And Jack closes out this particular conversation, wishing Fox a fast and fortunate journey and sends his best compliments to Mr. Raffles. Mike, when was the last time a party of, uh, of eager splitters headed out on their own boat away from a Jack Aubrey command in the face of Jack's own advice to the contrary. Let me think, was that Desolation Island? Uh, how did that work out? Mm, let's see. Right. I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking exactly the same thing here. But, you know, Jack gets back on the ship. He makes all the arrangement. And Stephen even has second thoughts about this. He, you know, he's asking Jack, you know, is this a mad, disproportionate venture? And Jack says, no, actually, it's a sensible undertaking. And he says, you know, Stephen says, well, you know, what if Fox gives wildly inappropriate orders? And Jack assures him, well, you know, it's going to be one of the Diane's officers who will be in command. Now, Elliot volunteers to be that officer. 
And we yeah. learned that you know he's volunteering because he was the officer on duty that morning when they struck the rocks. And he had forgotten his orders to reef topsails if the breeze increased. If he had done that, they would have approached the rocks at more like three knots instead of eight knots. You know, Jack knew about this. Elliot knew that Jack knew, but neither one of them mentions it. Jack just hears Elliot's request for his first command and agrees to it. And then Jack, you know, being the guy that Jack is, leads him through all the charts, even gives him a better compass to take with him. Oh, such a generous guy. I mean, right. Fox could really not have asked for more. <laughs> so when the pinnace finally sets off and sails from the island after some delays that are typical of the kind of things you get when landsmen are getting ready to make a, a sea voyage, Jack is back on deck and he's very polite still. No ill will. He takes off his hat to Fox, who in turn also faces Aubrey with his hat off. And after they're gone, Jack notices the lack of order on decks and the island from the rapid departure and has Fielding start getting things back in shape. And Mike, it, it, this is really interesting. There's, Jack is bothered about the ship being in some kind of a mess or some kind of a state here. And he's got something at the back of the, his mind and it's very O'Brien-ish that we don't really know what it is. Jack knows that he needs to figure a few things out. We're going to learn in a second what it is that he's kind of protecting against. But he's got this sixth sense that's telling him now that the ship needs to be in a safer situation, needs her belongings to be on shore and tidied up and all squared away. And I'm so glad, as we're going to find out, that Jack has this instant. <sighs> Jack spots Edwards on the island and learns then that Edwards was left behind with a spare copy of the treaty in case of an accident, which we might need to stick a pin in. It might be interesting for Stephen later on. And after dinner, Jack wants the cabins put together, he wants the island straightened up, and he wants water found on shore. So Jack is pretty clearly hedging himself here against an extended break. Well, I'll tell you what, finding water ashore, not a bad idea. You know, perhaps we should all take a little bit of break, get our things in order, and we'll come back hopefully with some fresh water. Oh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Hope everybody was able to put their hands on a on a near well, and we're back from break here. Well, Jack, who did not sleep at all the night before, kind of getting a thing in order, he sleeps until dinner, and he's refreshed by the sleep and by dinner. And at dinner, he remarks to his guest, I once ate my mutton at an inn called the Ship Aground, but I never thought to do so in sober earnest. So there's a little <laughs> <laughs> laughing there. And then he asked Captain Welby, he said, there's this word he's been searching for. It's, it's the word for setting up tents. And, and Welby, the Marine officer, says, well, castramentation, sir. And Welby is beaming, O'Brien writes, with decent triumph. It's rare that a soldier could triumph aboard a man of war. And Welby adds, and there's more to it than might be supposed. So, you know, we were joking as we started the episode in that, you know, castramentation sounds a little painful, but it is this, you know, kind of planning, designing, laying out, constructing a military camp. And, and it's, you know, more than just those of us who, you know, go off camping in the woods here. The idea is, you know, 
placing the, the camp properly in the line of battle, having it prepared oh. for all contingencies, being able to render mutual support to each other. And interestingly, we, you know, we haven't come back to Google Ngram in a while. You know, mm. high high in 1800, declining towards the ends of the 1800s. So very period appropriate word, Mr. O'Brien. Great job. Great job. Huh. Now, Welby is clearly a, a guy who's there to help Jack out. I, I love the fact that Jack is having great experiences with soldiers ashore. He had a great time with the Colonel, uh, Colonel Keating, I think it was, in uh, the Mauritius Command. He's got a really helpful and supportive military aide this time in Captain Welby. Welby goes on and suggests that it's best to be on rising ground. It's best to have a supply of fresh water within the lines and to be defendable. Welby suggests a spot that might not do well against artillery, but would be great in the event of an ordinary surprise attack with the right breastwork, with a stockade and with a carronade at each corner. Jack looks at this spot, this kind of compound that Welby's enclosed here, from a central mound where the Diane's livestock, that's the sheep and the goats and the pigs and the geese and the poultry, are all grazing. So, Mike, we've got that. The food supply is all ashore here as well. Right. He asks a sailor to move them and learns that the animals no longer respond to commands. Ugh, they've become so tame that they'll only follow the commands of the two people they like, the ones who care for them and feed them. And Jack makes a mental note that he needs to rotate these keepers more often. It's no good if the animals come to love and be loved by their keepers. They need a little bit of uh, healthy disrespect between the humans and the animals here. Jack likes the campsite, but he's not sure, and he raises this with Welby, about the defences. He says, I'm not sure that we need, you know, breastworks and all the rest of it. I would just like it to be neat. I'd like to have a well. I'd like to have tents for the men in the stores. And he asks Welby to lay it out while he talks with the sailmaker about getting tents. And, and Mike... We're going to be thankful later on that Welby is a little bit more enthusiastic than Jack is about the idea of breastworks. He says, can I at least have a little ditch for drainage with the earth thrown up on the outside like the, the breastworks are going to be some kind of byproduct of a healthy healthy bit of digging? And Jack says, okay, okay, soldier, but nothing elaborate. Nice, nice. Yeah, we do. We do. There is a reason for these contingency plans. That's a good, yeah. good job, Welby. Yeah, and well done, Jack, for saying, you know, let me turn it over to the guy who actually has the, uh, you know, the background in this thing. Well, Stephen has, of course, headed off into the forest. And, you know, Jack's looking for him, but not finding him. He takes Bondin and Seymour in the skiff, and he's thinking, yeah, I want to get as much of this island surveyed as I can before nightfall. And the current just sweeps them right along the south side of the island. But when they get around to the north, this kind of high, straight north face filled with caves, they're really pulling hard to get around it. And, and Bonnet even notes, you know, with a little bit of difference in tides and everything, you know, they would not have made it around. So as they're going around, Matron is calling out and waving a handkerchief from high up on these cliffs. And the only word they hear is soup. Nobody knows what to make of that. <laughs> yeah. So back on the ship, you know, as as Jack comes aboard, he finds Stevens playing his cello as as O'Brien says, part of his own Saint Cecilia's Day. So, you know, a a, a piece of music dedicated to Saint Cecilia's Day. And Stephen asks if Jack has seen their streeted camp. Jack says, you know, he only saw a glimpse of it as he came on board, and he, and he's kind of surprised. He asks, you know, is it completed already? Stephen says, well, certainly not to Welby's satisfaction, but every square inch is laid out. 
and he notes how much pleasure Welby and the Marines were taking in creating it. But then he adds that he, Stephen, had even greater pleasure discovering several thousand edible nest swallows on shore here. And, you know, he gives him the Latin tag. And then, you know, seeing that Jack doesn't respond to that, he says, you know, it's the bird's nest soup swallow. And he hopes that Jack will come see him with him tomorrow. And then, you know, Stephen starts into a long explanation of the eyeless flora and fauna while Jack is tuning his violin. And finally, the violin tuned, uh, Stephen says, well, so much for the ring-tailed ape. And, uh, you know, they set off into playing this St. Cecilia piece there. And, you know, fielding uh, visits, it gives them a report. They're eating toasted cheese and O'Brien writes, and they played on and on the music echoing the length of the almost empty ship with quite another resonance. So oh. ah, back in our happy place here. We like that a lot. Yeah. So should we, should we talk about bird's nest soup, Mike? That sounds like an interesting thing to follow up on. Yeah. So this Latin tag, Ian, how do you, how do you spin that? What do you think? Well, Hirundo Esculenta, which is uh, a, a name given by our old friend Linnaeus in 1758 to these particular swiftlets, I think you would call them, these particular small um, swallow-type birds called swiftlets, they make nests based on their saliva. They have this kind of saliva-based extrusion that they make their nests out of. It sounds disgusting, but it is edible. And the, the Esculenta in the epithet of their, their name there, means edible. And this is a big delicacy in China. People pay big money for the privilege of eating soup that has these bird's nests in it. Back in August 2020, the Times of India reported that these nests called the caviar of the East, which are high in protein and nutrients and prized in Chinese medicine for youth and long healthy life and skin and for their aphrodisiac qualities, sell $10,000 per kilo for what are called red nests and five to six thousand dollars a kilo for white and black swiftlet nests and i don't know if knowing that it's that expensive makes you happier or less happy when you sort of swallow this goo that's in the soup that's mainly made with saliva rather than twigs or moss right. uh, apparently it's a, it's a pretty much tasteless gelatin the nutritional value such as it is can be stripped away if it's not prepared correctly but it seems like at least in 2020, as recently as that, you could buy a small bowl of bird's nest soup in a modern day Chinese restaurant for a hundred dollars. Wow. Wow. You know, and I thought we were crazy in the eighties. Yeah, indeed. 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 Have you ever tried it, Mike, on your travels to China? Have you ever had the bird's nest? You know, I, I will tell you that I looked at that and some other, um, shall we call them delicacies, you know, on, on many menus. And I tried a few things that were, were very different, uh, um, dancing shrimp among them and a few of the medicinal things, but I did not go for the bird's nest soup. Now, now I'm sitting back thinking, wow, you know, given that it was on offer, perhaps I should have taken them up on it. <laughs> oh, wow. There you go. It would have been a big life event. Right. So Mike, in the morning after a night in his cot, his cot that is not swinging because it's aboard the not moving ship, Jack wakes and he's uneasy. O'Brien tells us that it's perfectly rational for a captain with a grounded ship that won't float for at least several days, but this particular uneasiness was of another nature, closer to superstitious or instinctive dread. 
and we've known mm. for a while that Jack is in quite close touch with his superstitions and the superstitions of sailors generally. Jack feels a little bit better after he's had his breakfast, after a tour to see the repairs that the carpenter's been working on, to see much less water coming into the well. And he's also feeling better after a visit to Welby's encampment. And surprise, surprise, as we suspected a few paragraphs ago, Welby has outdone himself a little bit in the matter of earthworks. There is exact earthwork. There are trim lines. There's a store tent in the middle and a well dug with three and a half feet of fresh water. So, Mike, the, the Marines on this rare occasion when they are the experts are really delighted that they've uh, they've shown a thing or two to the foremast jacks here. Yeah, and Jack's feeling a lot better about this. He decides to take some of their best swimmers and to go buoy the guns. Um, you know, they're going to lift them up. They're going to bring some of these guns to use in the camp here. But he finds that the water is way too warm and really unclean and, and decides there's something definitely wrong and his uneasiness returns. Although it doesn't sound like it at dinner. At dinner, he's telling Stephen he expects to have the ship off on Thursday, certainly by Sunday, when the springtide will be back at its fullest. But he finds that he has no appetite and leaves his wine and pudding to go on deck. And we, we know that you know the clearest of bad signs is Jack walking away from dessert and, and drinks at the end of the meal here. <laughs> true, true. Well, he gets on deck. The tide is, is too slack. There seems to be kind of a twitching on the surface of the water. The sky's hazy and low, and the sea and the rocks just smell wrong. And then mm. he sees a shark, a, you know, kind of which he's never seen before passing by the ship. All of this, you know, not boding well here. And as he's watching, this unnatural swell sets in. It's way too sudden, way too strong. And, and his uneasiness continues to shoot up over the next half hour. And finally, he signals for all boats, has them prepare to lay out the small bower, but this time with two cables. So, you know, Jack's clearly worried something's coming in. He wants to stabilize the ship. And on shore, he sees a cricket game that clearly is breaking up as the sailors are starting to run down to the landing place where these long white lines of surf are coming further up shore. You know, so mm-hmm. even the sailors are starting to notice something is off here. And then and then Jack goes to confirm, you know, he's lost his barometer. He checks with the masters and others that, yeah, they've got no barometer on board anywhere. He's clearly worried about the weather. Yeah, and all of this foreboding about the weather and about the odd emptiness of the sea, this is all starting to come to a, to a head here. Over in the east, which is where the swell is coming from, the sky is taking on a dark coppery glare on the horizon and 10 degrees above. So we've got this kind of odd light down at sea level, far away on the horizon. Jack orders Fielding to have all of the hands come and lighten the ship. He says we need to get rid of carronades, small arms, ammunition, whatever the purser, carpenter, gunner, armourer, sailmaker and bosun think most important in their own line. Then the hands, bags and chests, officers' personal property and beg the doctor to come aboard for his own things and the medicine chest. And Jack is obviously seeing here that lots of the precious stuff aboard the ship is going to be at risk if there's foul weather coming. And that seems to be what he's expecting. The surf then is pounding the rocks harder and harder as Stephen boards. And this is one of these really desperate situations where we went from flat, calm and fair weather but run aground paragraphs ago to real imminent jeopardy here as the weather's getting worse and worse. Stephen sees Jack gathering 
all of the ship's paperwork and his Humboldt readings and asks Jack what's afoot. Jack's reply is this nice mixture of jovial Aubrey and cautious Aubrey the seaman. I'm not sure, he says, but it may be your St. Cecilia. And then Jack goes on and recites, And when the last and dreadful hour the crumbling pageant shall devour, the trumpet shall be heard on high, the dead shall live, the living die, and music shall untune the sky. And here's another look back to old, old familiar territory for fans of these books. Dryden. We had some Dryden poetry as far back as HMS Surprise. This is Dryden's poem. His poem called A Song for St. Cecilia's Day to celebrate St. Cecilia's Saint's Day on the 22nd of November, 1678. So already a pretty ancient poem at the time. And music untuning the sky is a, is a brilliant line, but it's a horrible metaphor for Jack and Steve. Right. Um, the poem, we think, is about the, the power of music in the creation of the world, in the beginning and the end of the world, St. Cecilia being the patroness of music and musicians. Jack points to the sky and tells Stephen the only other time he's seen one like this was the blow that wrecked the Norfolk. That was way back in the far side of the world. I think four books ago now. Jack's clearing the ship. He wants everything of value taken ashore and all hands are set to. Yeah, the, the boats, you know, are racing back and forth. The tide's becoming fiercer. It's making it harder to get out. It's making it harder to come alongside the ship. And then again, to get back into shore. And Jack tells Fielding to have every officer ready to get his division ashore when he gives the word. Now, he says, I, I don't want any piping of abandoned ship. Let's just leave mm -hmm. in due order. And then Jack gives that word. And, and the sea and the weather are worsening continuously. We're finally left with Jack bonded the sentry at the spirit room door and one hand who O'Brien writes is not quite right in the head. They're the only four left on the ship. There's there's darkness far astern. There's lightning all across the eastern sky. And then the wind starts suddenly and comes racing with a howling white squall approaching the ship quickly here. Mm. And you know, from the launch, Fielding is imploring Jack to come on <laughs> you know, as this rain is cutting their breath and, and blurs their sight. Jack sends the other three down and then runs back inside to check and make sure there's nobody else aboard and then finally races to the boat. Uh, the boat, they let go, it just shoots towards the shore in this surf. And ahead of them, they see the large cutter, which had you know another group going ashore, getting pooped turning and rolling right in, you know, in the midst of this killing surf. And there's this ear-splitting thunder all above them and lightning all around. So, you know, incredible writing, really, um, you know, ominous, I guess, is, is not quite a good enough word here, you know, for what they're going through. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's imminent danger. And it's shocking to us because it's come almost out of nowhere, not, not quite out of nowhere. We've had all this foreboding coming, but now that it's here, it's not only something to be just dealt with, it's something that's really threatening life and limb here. Bonden is coxing one of the boats. He roars at the rowers to back water on the back of a towering wave and then screams to give way. This is his one and only chance to get the boat safely ashore in the surf. They speed to the beach. All the waiting crew members find a hold and run her up the sand and by skids to the highest tide mark next to the remaining cutter. Brilliant seamanship. Of course, it's Bonden pulling off this brilliant fit of seamanship. And the text says that Jack had often noticed and now noticed again that in time of extreme emergency, men often seem to go beyond dread, pain and fatigue. 
and for noise, danger, and the overturning of all natural order, this was as extreme as a great fleet action fought yardarm to yardarm. Wow. So finding their way through this really grim situation, this great natural violence that they're experiencing, they wade up the slope. They get through this unbelievable rain. They're carrying their things. And there's this lovely, touching human moment. There's a crew member called Charlie who's described as being a halfwit. Jack hollers to a quartermaster and says, look after Charlie. And the quartermaster takes him and cares for him very tenderly as if it's the most natural thing in the world. And Mike, this, this is a really nice moment in the midst of all this violence and life and death. Yeah, I, I really do love this. You know, Jack stopping to make sure there's nobody left on the ship, making sure that everybody's looked after, even this one crew member here. And then, you know, everybody, the crew members all heading back down to the beach to make sure they get the last boats in. And, and then this quartermaster, you know, looking after Charlie, like the brother that yeah. he is, you know, this yeah. band of brothers. Ah, beautiful. Well, as, as they get up into the trees, the force of the wind diminishes a little bit. Um, as they come on a camp, Welby's ditches are gushing water, but the camp is dry and the tents are standing. So, you know, this castramentation, not for nothing. This was fabulous. Uh-huh. Um, at, you know, when Jack finally reaches his quarters, fielding reports, 17 hands lost in the cutter and six much injured four lost in the skip, one hand struck by lightning, and Edwards had to be told that there was not the least hope for the penance. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, we've had a lot of, of big actions at sea without this kind of butcher's bill. Yeah. And now, in addition to that, we know that Fox and the old buggers, the entire mission suite except for Edwards, are presumed dead. Hmm. Wow. So there's a bit of a Greek angle to this, I think. You know, hubris caught up with Fox. Um, right. It's not only a disaster for Fox and the crew who lost their lives. It's it's clearly, you know, setting aside, all, almost saying was wasted, maybe, all of the effort getting the party out here, all of this planning, all of this expectation. If it wasn't for the fact that Edwards has a copy of the treaty, then we might be completely back to square one. Right. But th- thinking about the treaty probably has to come second in our mind because there's still this big storm running here. F- folks are ashore, but how are they coping with the weather and what's happened to the ship? Well, we're going to find out. Later on in the tent with the beating of rain and the crashes of lightning coming all the time, Jack finally realizes that a few things are going well. The ground underfoot is dry. He has all of his things stored on trestles and his chronometers and their cases are wrapped up in bladders. So some of his worldly goods are okay. He and Stephen are both pretty much numbed by this experience and there's nothing to be done. They just have to let the storm blow itself out. The noise means that they can't communicate. So they sit there together, nodding at each other with each outrageous thunderclap. Jack is straining to hear what's happening with the Diane, with the ship. But even a broadside, it says here, wouldn't pierce the uproar. At three o'clock in the morning, Jack wakes to hear a new sound, a tearing, rushing sound in the midst of all this unrelenting thunder and lightning. He sees Stephen with his beard, Stephen praying the rosary. And then hears a deep four to five minute roar and cries, what was that? And this time it's Stephen's expertise. Stephen says, a landslide, my dear. Wow. Yeah. You know, Jack falls back asleep, but Stephen, O'Brien tells us, stays awake throughout this whole thing. 
He has that last remaining copy of the treaty and Fox's accompanying letter in his metal-lined medicine case. It was thought to be the safest and driest place in camp. And, and Stephen, you know, I'm, I'm up. I got nothing else to do. He reads through it all. And the accompanying letter is worse than even Stephen had expected from Fox. It's more vehement. It's really less able, not, not well-written. And it has a great animosity towards Edwards. However, Stephen thinks, you know, it doesn't portray Stephen's role, doesn't mention any sources of intelligence. So, you know, he, he wants to make sure he's not being outed here. And during the night when he's overly tired, he's tempted to kind of go in and make some changes to the letter to make it even more ludicrous by adding the names of more people who have supposedly plotted <laughs> against Fox to you know, take away the merit of what he's accomplished. But then, you know, when he's feeling a little less exhausted, he realized, look, it's already so long that it defeats its own end. And it really demonstrates itself to be the product of an unhinged mind. So he's feeling better. He's feeling like, you know, Edwards isn't going to be unjustly condemned by Fox's letter here. Yeah, it's quite sad. I mean, I think we all knew that Fox was a bit deranged. But it's quite sad to see this is the sort of very undignified scrap that's left behind of him and his life when he thought he was in such a great, great flood of dignity and personal pride. So I'm sure that's meant there is, a, like I say, Greek style, a bit of a lesson for us about hubris. Right. Um, Jack, meanwhile, wakes to an even greater noise. The tremendous surf isn't tempered any longer by the rainfall. The raging torrent, which had poured from the forest before, was now checked by the landslide, diverting the flow away from the encampment. So that it looks like they've got away lucky here. Only the southeast corner of the encampment has been swept away, just down by the grassy slope above the landing place. There's been some damage, though. The launch has been shattered and swept out to sea. The small cutter and the spars are caught in a tangle of uprooted trees and bushes. We've got all this damage here. This, this sounds like bad news for an early getaway from the island here, Mike. And right as Stephen sleeps, Jack walks out. Yeah, Mike, there's an interesting juxtaposition here. Um, under a clean sky and calm conditions, uh, just a day or two ago, we had seen the full moon rising and we talked about what that might portend. Now we've got a clean sky, except this time we know exactly what's happening. There's no Diane. The ship is gone. The white water where the anchor might have stopped her if she had been heaved into deep water without too much damage, that water is empty. Fielding and Warren are looking westward with a pocket glass and report what appears to be a substantial piece of wreckage. They walk down the ravaged slope and out on a hammered down low tide beach filled with coconuts. Some of them might have come from Borneo, past drowned ring-tailed apes from the island, Richardson the boatswain, the carpenter, the midshipman and the foremast hands join them. This, this is a cinematic little moment here. The little raggedy remains of the crew here, all gathered on the strand, looking out at what they think is the remains of the ship here. Quietly, Fielding tells Jack that the tent which carried away had held their powder. If there's any left, it's only a few barrels. Wow. Well, they come along, and sure enough, they said it looked like some wreck down there, and they come to the frigate's starboard bow. And, and you know, they've got actually the bow and the hull as far aft as halfway along the waist. And it's sitting there with a fresh paint looking remarkably unmutilated on the sand. You know, and everybody just stands there in silent respect. And then O'Brien writes, 
At last, the carpenter said, These floor timbers were never honest work, sir. Not like the fuddocks of the rest. And Jack says, you know, I'm afraid you're right, Mr. Hadley. But there is plenty of sound wood, as you observe, enough for a fair-sized schooner, I make no doubt. Oh, yes, sir, said Hadley. Plenty enough and to spare. Then, shipmates, said Jack, smiling at his people, let us build one as quick as we can. End of chapter 10. End of the 13-gun salute. Wow. Wow. Really, really fascinating book. We, we're wrapping the book up here in, in a way that only O'Brien can wrap it up. One more mega chapter, really, this book is in the, in the big flowing, ongoing novel that we call a canon. We haven't really finished the story at all. We haven't settled anything besides Fox and Ledwood and Ray. Um, we're no closer to South America than we were when we started on the mission. Well, well gosh, Mike, when was that? Uh, maybe not even this book ago, two and a half books ago. We don't know what's happened to Stephen's fortune, whether the banks are still solvent or not. We don't know what's happened with his wife or his imagined and longed-for daughter. We don't know what's going on with Pullings and the surprise. We don't know about how Jack's going to complete all the observations and records that he'd been hoping to gather for Humboldt. No, we've had you know we've had so many questions unanswered. And and we've had these incredible themes of mystery and you know life and death and living versus non-living peoples and animals, love triangles and quadrants, all these things running just below the surface. So many facets of character and the human condition. We have another Clonfort-like character who's dead. You know, Clonfort yeah. died by his own yeah. hand, and 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 you know, Fox certainly died as a result of his own actions and decisions. So it's you know really um just a fascinating book so much like as we said so many echoes and call back to other parts of the canon and yet also with its own kind of i don't know just sort of an essence slightly different yeah. you know even continually yeah. more enhanced very good and and at the heart of it we've got this really unsettling situation with, with ray and ledward being out of the picture doesn't really give us much conclusion this this still we still know that there's somebody else in the british establishment working against aubrey and maturin this triangle amongst ledward and ray and abdul and maybe fox is really fascinating uh, we'd like to share with you some thoughts that we got in an email a little while ago from our old friend steve morris steve over at the cinephiles hey steve thanks for getting in touch um really really interested in the theme of sexuality and relationships and love triangles and infidelity and what kind of echoes that might have um to start to quote steve we start out with this diana and stephen relationship diana has a relationship with stephen he'd hidden the fact that he was a spy the french had sent laura fielding after stephen stephen who'd taken the the spanish fly aphrodisiac was really tempted to sleep with laura but managed to avoid the temptation this love triangle stephen Laura Fielding, Diana, gives knowledge to Ray. Ray betrays Stephen by sending Diana letters about Laura Fielding. So Ray kind of twists the knife on this apparent infidelity that's going on with Stephen here. Diana, not knowing that Stephen is a spy, learns of his betrayal and flees the country with Yagiello. That was what was going on two books ago. Betrayal, presumed infidelity, fleeing the country. Also, in both cases, just like with uh, with. Philby and McLean, 
we have spies who've lied to their lovers. In both cases, the lying spies flee the country with another man. In both cases, there's tremendous ambiguity about the nature of the relationships. Diana didn't know what was really going on with Laura. Stephen didn't really know whether Diana had slept with Yagiello. As for what Fox does or doesn't know, well, we can only speculate, as, as Steve says here. I'm still quoting from Steve's excellent email. Ray tried to use the exact thing against Stephen that is fueling Fox's anger towards him, this knowledge about sex and, and, and sexual orientation. And the weapon that was used to de destroy Ledwood and Ray, obviously the, the proximate cause was a rifle bullet. But what was the weapon that brought them to that point? Was it the revelation of Abdul's affair with them? Another infidelity triangle. It might even be, says Steve, that the revelation of Abdul's infidelity was delivered in the form of letters, just as letters had been central to Ray's betrayal of Stephen. By the way, St Steve, really great analysis, really fascinating theme. And I'm sure, I'm sure it's not a coincidence. We've got three lovers triangles involving four people. Stephen, Diana, Laura Fielding, Yagiello, the Sultan with Abdul and then Ledwood and Ray. Fox and Ledwood and Ray and, well, who knows? There's this fourth highly placed person, this official whose identity isn't going to be revealed uh, until, well, a couple of books time. And I was really struck by this. First of all, these, these repeating patterns that we've got in the relationships and the infidelity. I'm also thinking, Mike, and back back to Stephen, this is a pretty close fit with some things that were going on in O'Brien's life. Uh, immediately after World War II, O'Brien's marriage to his first wife had broken down. He had become somehow involved in the intelligence agencies. He fled to another country. He fled, in this case, to Wales, first of all, which is just about another country, and then fled to France, marrying then the woman that he'd met whilst working intelligence, Mary Tolstoy, abandoning, as the, as the Dean King biography says, um, his wife and their dying child. So, Mike, I, I bet that somewhere in this pattern of triangles of love and deceit and infidelity, we've got something that O'Brien is working through about his experience and his relationships and his life. We talked about this before in connection with his relationships with children. And maybe we're getting the same thing here in terms of his relationships with the women in his life. Right, right. And, and you know, and, you know, we've written these books a long time ago, but they're very open. There's, you know, relationships with men, relationships with women, women and men, men, but, you know, it really is um, amazing. And, and, you know, like you said, special thanks to Steve for, yeah, helping us step back for a minute and look again at this big picture as this story continues here. Yeah. And and by the way, if you haven't already, check out earlier in the series, our two joint episodes with Steve and John over at the Cinephiles, where we reviewed the Peter Weir movie. And check out Stephen and John's podcast, The Cinephiles, C-I-N-E Files. It's brilliant. It's a movie review podcast that I think you'll all yes. love. It's really, really brilliant. Well, you know, we're at the end of an Aubrey Matron novel. And like so many ending the books, I really can't wait to hear what happens next. I mean, we're shipwrecked in the middle of the perilous South China Sea, hoping yep. to build a vessel to get away. We've been there once before. Now we've lost all or nearly all of our gunpowder. Kind of assume or hope the surprise is out there somewhere, but... Perhaps she's nowhere near. And, and what happened to her in that great big storm if she was close by? It's right. only 200 miles to Java, but a trip that Jack's brand new boat didn't survive through that perilous sea. You know, I keep thinking to myself, what happens to our heroes? 
And what, as I look up on my shelf and say, hmm, the nutmeg of consolation, right? That this is one of the Sultan's titles. It's one of Jack's nicknames for Fox. What is this phrase going to mean in this next book? I think there's only one thing for it. What do you say to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? Mike, with all my heart. a sensible undertaking and, and <laughs> Mosey has his concerns about it as well obviously it's a sensible undertaking and he says